Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated Golden Ticket Scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here, and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine. Hi, I'm Anna-Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. And before we get started, first, if you have not voted, stop this podcast right now, or actually, I think you can probably continue listening, but open a browser window and go to votesaveamerica.com and make a plan to vote. You will find all you need there to find out how to vote in your state, what the various deadlines are, etc. We are past the time for mail-in ballots So you'll be looking for info on where to drop off your ballot or where to do early in-person voting. And if you have already voted, get thee to a text bank or a phone bank, both of which happen to be wherever you are. You can find out more about volunteering at votesaveamerica.com as well. But please, if you happen to get my number, um, know that I've been contacted approximately a thousand times already. And I may not text you back, but I have voted. Mark me as done. Now, as for this particular episode of the show, I conceived of it as a companion to last week's episode in terms of primarily being kind of media criticism rather than a deep personal journey. And, well, it actually wound up being pretty personal. You'll see. In any case, this episode is about how cable news, primarily MSNBC, and and news in general a bit, covers politics and why it's another area where it's not enough to simply be one of the good guys. Our first guest is Ariana Picari, a former Booker producer for The Lawrence O'Donnell Show on MSNBC. She left the network in June and wrote a viral blog post about why. The short version is that she came to believe she was part of the problem. The long version is the first segment of our show. Next is Jay Rosen, a professor of journalism at NYU, and the proprietor of PressThink.org. He pulls us back a bit for a structural analysis. And my question for him has to do with the fact that from the outside, it can feel in this era of Trump fact-checking that journalism has, has changed for the better. He feels perhaps differently. Lastly, Maria Bustillos, and I have some disclosure Both Maria and Ariana are currently columnists at the Columbia Journalism Review, where I used to work. Ariana covers CNN, and Maria does MSNBC. And Maria is also currently my editor for a column at Popula.com. In addition, she is one of the publishers at Brickhouse, a cooperative journalism venture she does mention in the interview. It's a long show, but it's worth it. And we'll start right now. Ariana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me and taking up this topic. I appreciate you being here. I, it's it's good to have someone give such um, a personal and candid account uh, of a thing that's in all of our lives that we don't see the sort of back end of. And and speaking of that, speaking of a behind the scenes look, why don't you tell me um, how life was going for you, what you were doing in June of this year? Well, I was 
working at MSNBC for the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell, where I've been for um, going on seven years and working from my tiny apartment in New York City. Um, we were all pretty much everybody was working remotely at that point. And um, I, you know, like everybody else had a schedule, but uh, like everybody else in the news business, that schedule morphs. And so um, I was working to help plan the show on a daily basis and looking for ideas and topics and things that I think were important and would be good for Lawrence. And um, I, at that point, we were covering obviously the pandemic heavily and um, news related to George Floyd and um, that crisis. And uh, the election, not so much, but we would try. Um, those conversations tended to morph into, you know, kind of political, I hate. Trump segments, which is, you know, that's what MSNBC does. But um, I, I just felt like across the board, there was, as usual, there is, was a lack of real useful information um, for the public and for voters. And so you decided to leave. I did. I, you know, I, it's something I've been contemplating for a while now. Um, you know, I, I, obviously everybody knows the commercial news business relies on ratings. And I, you know, I, my first day, I, I knew that that's what it was about. It wasn't until I'd been there as long as I had and gained a little bit of seniority that I saw the extent, um, that ratings really drive all of those editorial decisions. I mean, there, there's barely a suggestion made that, you know, the immediate thing out of their mouth is going to be, how is that going to rate? Or that person didn't rate well last time. Or it, it, it's front of mind in ed almost every editorial decision. And, it, you know, so many times there are topics that are suggested and they like and they want to do, but they kind of shrug and get a terrible look on their face and say, yeah, but that's not going to rate. So they don't even contemplate it. So you'd been thinking about leaving for a while. When you talk about June, I think you can put us, you put us all back. It, it seems like it was a long time ago, but at the same time, like it was a very sp a specific point in our histories, right? And was there something about that confluence of events that made you think, like, I can't do this anymore? There was, there was, at that point in particular with the pandemic, there was a lot of scientific information that was coming about, about how the virus spreads, about what we know about reinfection. What does it, you know, is there, you know, is there immunity? We, you know, there, there, were, there was this, you know, cases on the naval ship that had come out. Um, and it seemed like some sailors had been reinfected. You know, what does that mean? But there was no discussion about any of that. There wasn't even, you know, wasn't even considered because they wanted to keep the focus on. And I know that there's an, a hunger for this, but that they, they constantly kept the attention on, you know, what Trump did or said, what's, you know, stupid thing Trump did or said, or didn't do. And it, without being able to, to say, okay, but there's this all other sphere of information that people really need to know, you know, that, you know, that, that like, like, you know, you're calling yourself essential. And at that point, I just didn't feel like, what the material they were generating was essential because 
there was so much that was being left um, un, unsaid and uncovered. And, and uh, you know, at the same time, there with the um, George Floyd crisis, they were making ended up making decisions based on the same thing. You know, do we want this family member on tonight? You know, are they going to rate well? They didn't rate well last night. We liked it, but we didn't. You know, they didn't rate well. You know, seeing that, and and then you know, the election coverage at that point was really non-existent. I would say um, there were some, but it, it just you know the, the whole. My, in my opinion, all, the all of the election coverage um, completely lacked you know any sort of substance um, because they stick to you know the what you know what the headline polls are saying and on at, at msnbc they're going to cheerlead any good news for biden and so biden's ahead they, they they cheer that on and um if there are any warning signals um they don't want to talk about that because that is you know depressing for the audience and so people will tune out um, but these are the same mistakes that i saw them make or same habits that i saw them repeat from 2016. And I'm thinking maybe the people that work there all think, we're doing the right thing. This is great. We are on the side of the angels. They, they, they do feel that way. And, and I, every now and then, would, you know, raise my hand and say, hey, there's, you know, there, you know, you know if it's something with the election, I'd say you run the risk of complacency, you know, um, you know, or, you know, why can't you have a discussion about you know, policy, um, you know, through the debates, you know, you could have had an interesting discussion about Medicare for all or you know, healthcare. And that sort of thing just kind of got pushed aside, especially if there was some personality conflict on stage. Um, again, because, you know, that's the sort of thing that, that tends to rate better. Um, it's, it's personality driven, not you know, substance driven. And they think that if you get too far in the weeds, then you're going to lose people. We're talking a lot about ratings. And I always find it fascinating to tell people who are huge cable news fans what the actual viewership is. Do you want to talk a little bit about what is the rate? Like, what is it they're fighting for? Like, what, what are the ratings that they, that they seek? What is a good rating? A good rating is rating better than CNN. Um, you know, and, and you know they they watch the okay, the numbers come in every day at four o'clock, thereabouts, and they're broken down by quarter hour, and um, they get they get the overnights earlier in the day that are kind of rough numbers um, that rely primarily on large cities throughout the country, and so they get some sense of how the show rated the day before, and then we go about kind of planning the show, and. Um, then they get the more specific numbers that are broken down by quarter hour. So you can kind of, you really have a good sense of, you know, where people tuned in or where they tuned out. And, um, uh, the, they make decisions at that point based on, you know, the ratings, they'll change the show at that point. Um, because often when the numbers that come in at four, they include kind of the, the more rural areas of the country. You know, I remember before Trump came on the scene, MSNBC was struggling, you know, for third place you know, against headline news um, often. And, you know, if they if they came in number two in the demo, they would celebrate, um, and, you know, if they came in ahead of, of CNN. Um, once Trump came on the scene, MSNBC numbers 
grew significantly, like everybody's, but we, uh, there was a time where MSNBC was rating number one ahead of Fox, you know, kind of when they had their crisis, um, you know, with Roger Ailes and, and um, those folks. But in terms of raw numbers, I mean, it can, you know, the numbers go up and down, but they really compare whether they're number one, two or three. That's kind of what they focus on. Right. Because I guess, because I guess, do, do you want to talk about like, what is the size of the pie? That people are fighting over, though, because to me, I feel like people. I guess I'll just be straight. Up, I feel like people don't know how small that pie is that cable news is fighting for. Like they think it's just this huge stakes, and it is in a way. It's a very powerful kind of group of people, but it's numerically not that large. Yeah, and that that's that's what was really really frustrating for me. Right. So tell so tell me so what. You know, on I, again, it goes up and down. Um, but I would say two hundred fifty thousand in the demo for the hour is like kind of a normal number. And if they go up to like three hundred or three hundred fifty thousand in the demo, they get they get excited. And then if it's you know five or six hundred thousand in the demo, they are like you know popping champagne because. You know, and that's that's going to be you know that that that's a big day. I don't remember you know when that would at what point that would have happened. Whether it was probably through some part of the Russia investigation, they would they would decide not to do an important news story to salvage maybe ten thousand viewers, right? Like I, I I don't. It's hard to quantify that, but the. The numbers that we're talking about, that's why I would get so frustrated because it's like you're selling your soul for this number of people just so that you can try to like scrap your way ahead of CNN. And that that really, I'm sorry, I'm getting upset because it really is like the cost that they're willing to pay is for getting so little. It, 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 it kind of boggles the mind. I mean, you know, they, the, the, P plus two, you know, the, the total number of audience that's bigger, it's probably closer to a million. But in the demo itself, the numbers are are not large, I don't think. And yeah, if you compare it to network news, it's not, you know, anywhere close to that. So So let's let's get to the get to the piece that you wrote. Um you made this, you know, catch us up. Um you made this decision, got very frustrated. There were bigger stakes, and you decided, all right, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm not just going to leave. I'm going to announce that I am leaving. Well, to be honest, this, okay, first, this is something I've been contemplating for a couple of years. And I, I have been trying to find, I've been trying to find kind of a safe landing place. Um, and I didn't know what that was going to be, but I didn't necessarily, like, I, I didn't, I had kind of looked for other jobs, but I wasn't very aggressive because I didn't honestly want to take another job because I knew I was going to want to, come out and do say something about the industry. And I didn't want to put my next employer in an awkward position because, you know, I, I didn't know how they would, you know, I, I just didn't know if that would be, you know, unethical or if they would put, you know, create some sort of conflict. Um, and I have been talking to people for advice, you know, former bosses and people in the industry for a couple of years trying to get like, what, what you know, am I, am I, First of all, my concerns valid, and for you know across the board, everybody said my concerns are valid. But the you know then then they were like, but we don't know what you're going to do, and um, 
you know, if you come out like, so, you know, someone said, you'll never work in another newsroom again if you talk about this. And I, you know, clearly based on the industry as it is, I don't want to work in another newsroom like that. Um, but, you know, what do I do? And so I, you know, I had other plans going into this year and then COVID started and yeah, you know, I, I, I was going to like, I was supposed to do yoga teacher training the first three weeks of May. I mean, that wasn't going to be a career change. It was just something I wanted to do, but I, I kind of plan, you know, I was thinking about, you know, doing something else and um, those plans got blown out of the water. And then it really like, once we got into the, the pandemic and I, 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 like I saw what they were, the decisions they were making and how I, I feel how consequential it was at such an important time that they couldn't do the right thing, even in the middle of a situation like that, that I just, I, like, I had, like, I couldn't continue on. And even, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and I still don't know exactly what I'm going to do. I, you know, I, I, but I, my, you know, my mother, she said she, she supported me, which was great. And said, you know, you have a place to live. So I, you know, that cut my cost of living. You know, I would prefer to be in my apartment in New York, but um, it just wasn't worth it at the end of the day. So, um, I, um, am in Charlottesville, Virginia now and kind of trying to, you know, figure out, you know, next steps. Um, and so, yeah, and, and, you know, people, some people, I, the, some of the feedback that I got when I resigned, I mean, there was, I got a lot of feedback from a lot of different types of people all across the spectrum. Um, but some of the feedback was, you know, thank you for doing what your colleagues won't do. and you know, don't stop defending them, you know, because I, I don't want to like rub their noses in it. I honestly, like, I, to be frank, I don't have dependents. I'm not married. It was a relatively, I mean, it was a hard decision, but it was a relatively easy decision for me. People who are married and have mortgages and families and other people to think about, like, what are you going to do? I, you know, the, the, the industry itself across this, the spectrum is, is, um, very broken and very fractured right now. And it's, you know, once Trump is off the scene, you know, they, they've kind of gotten <laughs> sadly a little bit of a lifeboat the last several years, but once he's not there anymore, I think it's going to get even worse for the industry. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, whether it's, you know, if you go, you can do nonprofit journalism, but you know, that struggles and, um, it's, you know, there just isn't, a, you know, a lot else for other, for journalists to do, broadcast journalists to do. So it, it's a tough decision. Like, and, and you try to trick yourself into thinking, well, I am doing good work and I am, you know, and they do do good work. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's not always good, work, you know, the work that they should be doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, to fill the needs of our financial entanglements, some ads. This episode of With Friends Like These is sponsored by Apostrophe, a prescription skincare company that connects you with a dermatologist online who can prescribe your products to meet your skincare goals. Apostrophe makes it easy and affordable and safe to see a board-certified dermatologist online. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online questionnaire about your skin concerns and medical history. 
Then snap a few makeup-free selfies that you don't have to show to anyone else, and your dermatologist will get back to you within 24 hours with a customized treatment plan tailored just for you. Apostrophe has its own compounding pharmacy. They custom blend and hand bottle your prescription, and it ships directly to your door. Their prescription creams come in airless pumps, not just like a, you know, a tube, to ensure those potent ingredients stay effective. Plus, your order comes with cute stickers to, well, decorate your bottle, decorate your water bottle, decorate your face. Who knows? Use them to decorate. I have been using apostrophe, well, since they became apostrophe, basically. And one of the things that makes me really happy to use it is the dermatologist that I quote unquote see via apostrophe actually checks in with me every once in a while. Like he says, are you sure you want to continue with this treatment? Do you want to try something else? Do you want to scale down? Do you want to scale up? It's nice to have someone be actively concerned. I mean, he's a doctor. He should be actively concerned. But I know that this is happening even though it's just an online relationship. So get your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com for only $5 when you use our code FRIENDS. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, go to apostrophe.com and click Begin Visit. Then use code FRIENDS at sign up and you'll get your dermatology visit for only $5. That's apostrophe.com, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E.com and use the code FRIENDS to get your dermatology visit for only $5. We thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. With Friends Like These is brought to you by FabFitFun. FabFitFun is the only subscription box that delivers full-size self-care and wellness products straight to your door. Their reliable team of experts carefully pick the top trending products for you to choose from to personalize your own box of happiness. I have a few favorite things that I've discovered via FabFitFun. The one that I've reordered the most on my own bought full-size replacement product for the thing that I got in the box is the Murad Rapid Collagen Infusion Cream. I don't know exactly what it is about it that makes me love it so much. It does smell like lavender, which is nice. And it is rich, but not like heavy. It just feels really good going on, especially as the weather starts to get cold and your skin kind of dries up, or at least that's what happens up here in Minnesota. You can discover new things through FabFitFun, or you can give new things to your friends. That is one of the main things I use the box for now that I've been subscribing to it for a few years now. I've kind of discovered the stuff that I like, and I still get more than I can use. So you know what? I've like banked Christmas and birthday presents up for at least a year or so. It's one of the reasons why the value of this subscription is so immense. Do you want your own subscription? You can subscribe using the offer code code WFLT10 for $10 off your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. Pre-order your winter box today. Sign up now so you can snag amazing products, including that Murad cream that's in the winter box right now, or a summer and rose cozy robe. That's coupon code WFLT for $10 off your first box at www.fabfitfun.com. With Friends Like These is also brought to you by Magic Spoon. So, husband John, big fan of Magic Spoon. It turns up in our life in a lot of different ways. But recently, he realized he needed to have the, you know, meals, multiple meals in a day. Because if not, he actually has multiple meals for dinner. I used to call him two dinner John. So, he wants to have an actual meal. It can't be just a snack. And I pointed out 
magic spoon. It's it's breakfast, right? Like that's a meal. It feels like more than a snack because you get out a bowl, you get out the milk, you you know, you make something. Although you can also eat it at your desk, which in this case is our kitchen table. And it is, as you know, if you have listened to the program, good for you. It has zero grams of sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net carbs in each serving. There are four great flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. And that means, John, he can't have the chocolate. He has the three other flavors to eat. If you are interested in trying Magic Spoon for yourself, go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use the code WFLT at checkout to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money and no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use the code WFLT for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. And now we're back with Jay Rosen of NYU to talk about the larger problems with political journalism in the age of Trump. Jay, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Anna. In this era of Trump coverage, the PR for large news media organizations has at least become a message of we're on your side, we are, we are pro-truth. And, and the implication is, you know, there are people lying to you and we're going to be on your side and we're going to call these suckers into account, right? Um, you know, CNN has a whole ad campaign that this is a banana ad campaign and this is a mask is also another one of their ads. Um, and then the Washington Post uh, slogan, democracy dies in darkness. Uh, the New York Times has run a whole series of ads that have to do with, like, finding the truth. The truth lives here, I believe, is their their slogan. And the truth lives here and democracy dies in darkness are both slogans that would be appropriate to any time, I believe. Time about media, one would hope. But they were chosen in this time. They were chosen with the unspoken, but I think fairly clearly implied idea that we are fighting the good fight. Yes, I think they tried to capture some of that spirit in these marketing slogans and um, mottos that they adopted without really changing the underlying ideology of what they do. So, for example, I've written about this. If you look carefully at those the truth is hard ads that the New York Times runs. If you look carefully at the images and the soundtrack of them, you find that it's saying we have to uh, battle the truth shaders of every kind on both sides. Uh, And they're actually positioning themselves as the truth tellers to the left and the right, even though in the climate of Trump, it comes out seeming one way. Um, And democracy dies in darkness is a very bold statement by the Washington Post at a particular time that puts the newspaper on the side of defending democratic institutions. But then when Marty Baron says we're not at war, we're at work, he's kind of sanding that off a little bit and blunting the force of that. Um, And similarly, CNN has always said since 2012, I think their slogan was, um, 
the only side we take is yours. Um, and so I would see this more as a tension within these organizations. There's a, there's a desire to associate themselves with battling the lies and falsehoods coming out of the government. And there's also a desire to separate themselves from the opposition and the resistance. And those two things uh, live uneasily together. So I want to circle back to the question I feel like I, I had when I thought of having you on the show, which is, so do you think anything changed in this past four years? Because you've been a critic for a long time and, and on both sidesism, um, basically, I know is one of your big critiques. Um, so, and you just alluded to the fact that we still have a problem with both sidesism. Uh, NPR is sold on that uh, to this day. They're running both sides pieces about the um the reality uh you know dueling realities between the left and right um but yeah i think there were some change and some things that were really difficult for journalism to change they they certainly became more comfortable describing the president as somebody who tells lies and that um definitely happened and they became more oppositional, I would say, to the flood of falsehood coming from uh, the White House. They became a little more skeptical about covering uh, the president's uh, tweets, and they became a little bit more aware that they have to kind of defend democratic institutions, but only marginally so. And where the problem of covering the Trump government meshed well with existing practices in journalism, like with big investigations into his taxes, um, they performed quite well in sort of exposing hidden truths because that lined up with existing practice of investigative reporting. But when um, the realities of the Trump government um, made their existing routines obsolete or counterproductive, it was very difficult for the American press to drop those routines. Um, a good example would be the way they were attracted to Trump's um, coronavirus um, briefings, where he was actively disinforming the American public, but the convention of covering what the president says as news was just too strong for them to abandon that ritual. Um, and in fact, they never abandoned the ritual of, of uh, lapping up everything the president says at the White House, even though I think they should have. So um, to me, it's a mixed picture. And my general perspective on this is that the routine practices of the political press in the United States rest on assumptions about how candidates and presidents will um, behave. And Trump violates many of those assumptions, which breaks the practices that um, ride on top of those assumptions. And in most cases where that happened, the press continued on with its practices, even though the premises underneath them no longer applied. Can you give some examples of what you're talking about? Well, a really good example is the fact check was originally supposed to shame candidates and presidents into changing their behavior. And indeed, Glenn Kessler has said that presidents, Democratic and Republican, 
would alter the claim when it was fact-checked and shown to be false. They would take it out of the stump speech. They would stop saying it. They would revise it uh, so that it met the definition of, of true. Um, and Trump not only doesn't do that, he doubles and triples down on his false statement. And he goes further in converting the fact check and the criticism that he gets from the press into a mobilization strategy for his base. And, you know, the Washington Post is now up to 25,000 false statements. So obviously being fact checked didn't result in any change in behavior. Yeah, something you're not doing something. um very effective if it keeps happening 25,000 times. There's, there's a problem there. A good example of that. Another one, another one would be the statement, which did become kind of a, a, a rule of thumb over time, was that the, what the president says is news. Uh, that was the way the White House beat was built. Um, and obviously, with um, Trump's Twitter feed included and the flood of false statements that, and misleading statements and even dangerous statements in the case of a public health emergency that he makes. Obviously, that rule, what the president says is news, doesn't work anymore. Um, but it kind of still exists, even though it's absurd. So things have a mixed bag at, the, at, the, at best. Um, for these past four years. There's some things that have kind of improved a little. And in my point of view, it sounds like your point of view too. I do think that Trump forced journalists into calling him a liar. Like it just became just very difficult to not call him that. Um, I believe there's been a little bit of progress in calling him racist. Yes. Um, yeah, I would agree there, that that term is more likely to be used now. We, we racially tinged is its own little joke of sorts, sort of like economically anxious. Um, and then also, I, I think you're right that the habits of, you know, the past few decades are still very strong. Do you think that what has happened can tell us anything about what the media um, might do in response to a change in administration? I have concerns that some of the things that have happened during these past four years will lead to not much improvement um, and perhaps even a backsliding. But I'm curious what you think. Well, I think uh, two things. One is the situation is set up for a return of kind of both sides coverage in which you have a Democratic president, Biden administration, who will be opposed by a Republican Congress or or Republicans in Congress who hold maybe one branch, maybe none, but still uh, represent an oppositional force that the press takes very seriously. Uh, and you'll have the, on the one hand, on the other hand, um, sort of situations set up, and they'll just return to a kind of journalism they know very well. Um, and I think that's extremely likely, and that there will be pressure for them to demonstrate this is already starting. You can already see this gathering. Uh, there'll be pressure to demonstrate that they can be as tough on Biden as they were on Trump, as if Biden will be putting out sort of the same volume of misinformation that Trump did, which, of course, would be a complete lunacy. Um, but deeper than that, much more important than that, is my second point. I believe that the Republican Party is now committed minority party. 
or counter-majoritarian, as political scientists would say. And it can only win by making it harder to vote. And it can only survive by making it harder to figure out what the party is all about. And so there's a structural conflict with journalism now built into the Republican Party. And I think we're going to see that um, happen in the next four years. And I don't think our press is ready for that in any way. You say structural conflict, and I I wonder if that's exactly that to me. I understand what you're saying, but in some ways, it occurs to me that the way American journalism is structured, what the Republican Party would like to do, our media is not structured in a way that it can combat it. This both sides ism is actually a, a perfect platform for the GOP to, to snow the public? Uh, well, what I mean is that, that the, the GOP as a minority party has to propagandize the American public. Uh, and that is going to become its nature uh, in an even deeper way than it was over the last four years. And that is in conflict with honest journalism, but but the way the American press is organized as a both sides mechanism will permit it. Uh, and that's my big concern. That's my that's my worry at this point. Yeah, I'm just sort of thinking about how that would ever change and what the marketplace has to do with it. Well, it would it can change once you start to realize, for example, that this is really shitty service. It's low quality. The Republicans say there's massive voter fraud. The Democrats say there isn't. And the best you can do is say, we have no idea. That's good service. So one way it could change is, is if it begins to be, if both sides journalism begins to be associated with a poor level of service, you know, low quality mass market, um, cheap, you know, disposable, uh, that might be one way. It seems to me we're in a moment where it is the perfect time for organizations to prove that they are interested in the well-being of their consumers, their readers, listeners, whatever, more than one side, other side, because in, in this particular moment we are in, to do a one side, other side coverage of the coronavirus would be to endanger the lives of your news consumers. Correct. And there are some indications that trust in the news media that has provided reliable information about the pandemic has been on the rise. There's anecdotal evidence from journalists in the front lines who say people are really grateful for this. Um, but I would add at the same time that there's an entire political movement that exists to deny the scientific reality of the pandemic. And journalists don't have any choice. They have to oppose that movement. And I'm not sure they quite realize that yet. But um, there could be in the pandemic the beginnings of a different relationship between news providers and their publics. Thank you so much, Jay, for joining me. Thank you very much. 
And on that note, I want to let you know that using this show's offer code, if you frequent our sponsors, is the closest thing we have to a direct financial relationship. And who might our sponsors be? Well, here's some more of them. Monk Pack sponsors with friends like these. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation, and let's be honest, most of them don't taste very good. They don't fill you up, and they certainly don't satisfy your cravings. But this episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who make truly delicious, low-carb, low-sugar snacks. Monk Pack keto granola bars contain just one gram of sugar, two grams of net carbs, and they're only 140 calories. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle or, like me, the keto curious. And they taste great. They have a soft and chewy texture and come in delicious flavors like coconut cocoa chip, maple pecan, and peanut butter. I am a generally a fan of peanut butter in all its forms, but I like the maple pecan granola bar. It's a more subtle take on the salty sweet that I love so much about peanut butter. They are perfect for a quick breakfast, a snack between Zoom calls, or a late night treat. In addition to being keto-friendly, the bars are also gluten-free, grain-free, plant-based, and non-GMO, no soy, trans fat, sugar alcohols, or artificial colors. They taste incredible. You can't beat the nutrition or satisfaction they provide. Try it for yourself and see. We have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering the code FRIENDS at checkout. To get started, just go to monkpack.com, that's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com, and select any product, and then enter code FRIENDS at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monkpack, good food you can count on. And thanks for sponsoring the podcast. With Friends Like These is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. It is election season, as they say, and whether you've already voted or you still need to vote, or we haven't quite decided who won yet, our country is choosing the best candidates or, you know, among the best candidates for president, VP, and hundreds in Congress. That is a lot of jobs to fill, especially after months of watching debates and researching various levels of experience. What if you had to do all that work every time you needed to hire for your business? Thankfully, there's ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter does the work for you, and right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com friends. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent to over 100 job sites with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com friends. Friends, which is spelled F-R-I-E-N-D-S. You may be stressed out about the election or the, the fact the election's not over, but you won't be stressed out about hiring when you try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now a conversation with Maria Bustillos of CJR and Popula.com in a more philosophical vein. Welcome to the show, Maria. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm excited to talk to someone who I guess um, professionally consumes MSNBC um, and cable news. Uh, you have an excuse. <laughs> oh, I have an obligation, which I uh, insufficiently appreciated when I took the gig. So I'm interested in talking to you about MSNBC sort of in its current iteration, which is as... Um, Trump foe, I suppose, 
At least they would consider themselves that. Uh, and, um, you know, bastion of safety um, for uh, what is the the, the, the reality-based community? That was the thing that we used to call ourselves. Yes. Well, it, it's unclear. You know, that was attributed to Carl Rove. And I, like, wrote to him and asked if it was so because I couldn't find the place where the attribution, you know, was, was kind of vague. And his office denied that his aide had ever said that or he had ever said it. So like much of what we talk about in politics, it is a gesture towards something that is itself not true. A gesture towards truth (laughs) is itself not true. (laughs) It's a fantasy about truth, and it actually says more about us than it does about the state of the world. And, And that maybe is a very, very elaborate segue to talking more specifically about things that are actually on the TV. Well, you know, I thought it was interesting you're saying Trump foe because there are an awful lot of never Trumpers on MSNBC. And the idea that it's sort of this left leaning network to me is like ludicrous, you know, when there's hours of Joe Scarborough and Nicole Wallace, who was like literally the comms director for the George W. Bush White House. So, it's like um, there, there's a there's a sort of automatic cognitive dissonance for me in in uh, sort of situating the coverage as being one thing a and like you know really uh, kind of breaking down what constitutes a Trump foe. Like if you're a foe of just Trump himself and you think he's gauche, you know, which is sort of Nicole Wallace's position mainly. She thinks he's icky or gross or whatever more than she actually disagrees with any of his policies, you know, that how, how Trump foe is that really, you know, how many of these people aren't just Lincoln project Republicans who are looking to feather their own nest in the future after this one guy has fallen. So I don't want to derail the conversation, but I have so many thoughts and feelings about uh, the never Trumpers. Cause I know a few of them. I think I could call a few of them friends and it is there's a part of me that wants to defend some of the individuals involved in these things. Like, I don't want to reject people who used to have beliefs I disagree with, you know, but I, but also the term that is really important or this the word in that sentence that's important is used to, you know, and or take responsibility for them. Right. Like even we can still disagree, but like just no one was like, hey, Bill Crystal, you know, Yeah. I mean, just say it was a bad idea, you know, just say I I was wrong. That would be extremely helpful for me. Like, you know, I mean, very shortly before Nicole Wallace was hired at MSNBC, she was on Joe Scarborough defending the torture program, saying, you know, I don't care what we did, literally. And so, like, I, I just, you know, to me, that's just like, I mean, it's not, it's not okay, A, and B, it's kind of like, just stop calling it the left network, you know? She's very popular on this network, and there's all these sort of like Swadis on liberals who are persuaded by the, you know, ew, Trump, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you know, this, this is very similar to like what goes on with the Lincoln Project, you know, where the, the, the sort of performance of, of detesting the icky bad thing is, you know, just kind of stands in for what ought to be a reckoning, exactly as you say. Just tell me what you think about what was done during the Bush administration, you know? I mean, 
Michelle Obama is this guilty of this too. She like called George Bush. I love him to death. You know, my partner in crime. It's like, come on, man, as Joe Biden would say. What do you think MSNBC's coverage of this four years um, has done? Do you think you can speak to that? Do you think it's had an influence in the in in the way that we think about politics? Because it is true that there is a very online portion of the world, which probably includes this audience as well as myself, and that's not the same as reality. Um, but I'm just I'm just curious, like you know, with its powerful uh, 250,000 viewers in the demo, <laughs> has that meant anything? I am older than you. And I have a lot of um, Karen friends, I would say, you know, liberal Karen friends who are resistance types. And that's their home. MSNBC is their home. I have like, you know, old friends, we raise our kids at the same time who have that thing on all day long. I think it's very influential for a certain group of people who are um, sort of comfortable liberals uh, who are looking for an ideological home. And like, I personally don't care for that concept, you know, of like a, a group think for my politics, but I know a lot of people do. They want to feel a sense of unity and um, belonging. And I think, you know, that to that extent, MSNBC provides that for a lot of people who don't take in a lot of politics in other in other places and don't like read the paper every single day or um, you know make this this big part of their lives uh, in a broader sense. But they really really like having this every day, and I don't think that it's a monolith. If you really pay attention and watch it all the time. There's just a gigantic difference, not only in kind of tone or in position, but like, you know, why they're doing it sort of between Joe Scarborough and Chris Hayes. I find it very difficult, really. Uh, sometimes I'll watch this stuff and think like, you know, how can these guys even be in the same building? They just, this is not um, the project that amplifies both of these voices, I find really actually confusing a lot of the time. Um, but at the same time, it gives the impression, you know, in the TV way of this very glossy, monolithic uh, presence that comforts people. And um, so I think, yeah, it's had a, a big effect on a certain kind of educated liberal. And I guess the question is, is... I mean, what's so wrong with that? Is there a reason to to care that this is happening? Like, besides, I personally get upset sometimes <laughs> at some of the coverage. I would love to see a more explicit interrogation of the overall project of these anchors. What would be success? Like, what would represent success to Nicole Wallace in her project as a broadcaster. What does Chris Hayes want out of his work? This isn't something that is explicit or that's interrogatable or that's been said anywhere on the network. And I would love to know because it's very 
confusing and mushy and and diffuse. Like I wrote this whole piece about that at CJR about like the character of these people and their backgrounds. And, you know, with a view to wondering, you know, what are you doing here? What do you what do you want? You just want to be on TV? You want to be a TV star? I think there are certain anchors who that's what they want. They want to be famous, you know, more than they really care about what's going on in the world. I think you could say that, you know, about Brian Williams, who like persisted in this job even after he'd been completely disgraced for having told like these outrageous whoppers and been like absolutely demoted. But he just has to be on TV, I think. Like that's like one kind of broadcaster. And I think Chris Hayes is a guy whose dad worked in public health and he is absolutely freaked out about the pandemic and he just wants to tell people about it. So those aren't really the same things and yet it's all presented in the same glossy format. And so I I would like to see uh, a more open and and less like explicitly TV-ish approach to how people are told about what's going on in the world. Being on TV is its own is its own end. And I I say this as someone who has worked with people who now have gigs and shows on various networks. Who and I you say this with pe- these are people that I I like and respect some <laughs> but who really feel like getting on TV is the is the thing, you know. Like that's the brass ring. Where, why does anybody have a personal goal in this thing? It's a public trust. Your job is to tell people what's going on. You know, like you're concerned about being on TV. The fuck? What, the, what is this? It's ridiculous. Well, as with most things, I blame capitalism. So, you know, I mean, it, it is we confuse our our personal calling with the um, necessity of making money. And that can lead people down roads that, you know, just perpetuate that cycle in a way, right? And you can think you're still doing the Lord's work. But because those, because the perversion that happens when fame and money are outsized influences, I think is pretty invisible to the people who are going through it. Oh, 100% it is. Remember that thing that Robin Williams said that cocaine is God's way of telling you you're making too much money? I mean, these are deep. I mean, it's sort of funny to, to get to this, but these are kind of deep questions that are applicable to, <laughs> to not just journalism, right? But I mean, obviously, they're applicable to everything. But in journalism, these questions have an outsized influence on the direction of our democracy. Absolutely. It's completely connected. I wrote about this recently at CJR, actually, too, um, you know, because we're doing this project called The Brick House. It's a cooperative journalism project. And it was sort of like, okay, so what is actually wrong that we're addressing? What is the problem that this thing is solving? And like, to me, it's, it's partly like a capitalism problem. And it's sort of connected to this other related thing, which is journalists are taught that each each one of us is on his own little hamster wheel going towards his own little Pulitzer. And so if you, if you succeed, you are going to get the fancy gig and the fellowship and the 
panel discussion and the junket and all these things. And, you know, and, it, and the TV thing also, you know, this is, these are signs of success. This is your audience will grow, you grow in influence, you know, but like all of this comes at the expense of the profession as a whole. You very rarely talk to journalists of any stature who are thinking about how do I strengthen this profession? How do I like make sure that the truth gets out to more people? And I mean, it's really strange, right? Because most, most journalists will tell you that they, that they care about that. You know, that that's why I got into this. I was, you know, the editor of the college paper and, you know, I, I fell in love with it. You know, I wanted to tell people what was going on and bit by bit, it's sort of like, well, if you succeed, you'll be doing these other things. And so I feel very strongly that, you know, thinking about what you're doing and talking about what you're doing is, is crucial to democracy. What, you know, what is your personal end game and how are you, what is your contribution to sort of the whole culture? I mean, it's, it's not, it seems like a really off the wall question, but it's actually the question. Maria, thanks so much for coming on the show. I had the most wonderful time. Thank you so much, Anna. And that is it for the show. This show comes to you from Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Lily Alexandrov. Izzy Margulies tries to wrangle me into a coherent schedule. Leah McMahon writes anything on my social feeds that is an informative thread about voting. Whitney Pastrick does not usually listen to the end of the show, but I want her to know that she has been vital to my ability to continue to function in these waning days of the election. And I'll repeat something I've said before in these closings, because I need to hear it every day, if not every hour. We are in the middle of something that no one could have ever prepared for and that no human was meant to go through. And when I tell you that you need to be easy on yourself, I bet there are a lot of you who, like me, firmly believe that other people should definitely be easy on themselves, but that you are an exception. Everyone else should get grace, except for me, because I am not working beyond my limits yet, and that's not working hard enough until I am working beyond my limits. If that is the way you think, and it is the way that I think, then I want to make you a deal. I believe that you deserve grace. And I will hold that belief for you, if you'll do the same for me. When I think I don't deserve a break, I'll think of you, thinking of me. And when you think you have to push yourself beyond what's humane, think of me, thinking of you. And somehow, we'll survive. We'll take care of each other. Speaking of which, I want to do something a little different this week something that I think is appropriate if you're listening to this the day before or the day after the election, or any time, really. I want to create some space to breathe and maybe think some kind thoughts about yourself or about someone else. Think of something you're grateful for or someone you love. I want us to take three deep breaths together and be in this moment, exactly this moment, for each other and ourselves. If you are driving, do not close your eyes for this part, but if you can close your eyes, go ahead and close your eyes. All right, are you ready?
and now, no matter what else is happening in the world, please take care of yourselves. <laughs>